Crossover Q is a podcast that openly discusses the Q cultural phenomenon and all its associated conspiracies, ranging from armed political conflict, child abuse, sexual abuse, racism, sexism, and apocalyptic fetishization. Listener discretion is advised. So one of the things that becomes just so painfully obvious when you start following the Q world, when you start actually uh, reading the posts and listening to the videos and uh, watching the little speeches they give at their conventions, one of the things that you start to figure out is that the words they speak, the ideas they promote, are all completely inconsistent with one another. The Q conspiracy, the entire culture that has developed and continues to evolve around it, it all lives in these little uh, snapshots of information. A post over there, a meme over here, a slogan uh, spray-painted on a flag, a few lines from a speech. And, And for most people, if you're outside of it and you have any kind of a decent memory or attention span, you'll notice that these little snippets of information don't all line up with each other. If you put all those ideas or fragments of ideas into one long paragraph, then it doesn't take long to figure out that it's all a self-contradiction. For instance, as I've said, I have a a family member, a distant sort of cousin of mine, who is involved with QAnon. And so every once in a while, I pop over on her page just to see what's going on, just to keep tabs on the movement. And I, I can't look for very long because, frankly, it's too upsetting. But as I scroll back into the middle of last summer here, I'm seeing posts about how the coronavirus is in fact fake. There is no COVID. It's the flu. It's all explainable by a bad flu season. These people are dying of the flu. It's all made up, so on and so forth. Then, if I forward to this past spring, this past May, I see all these posts about COVID coming from a lab in China. And so, okay, I know that the lab leak theory has become more plausible uh, to certain experts in recent months. Uh, But these posts aren't about its plausibility. They're not saying, oh, you know, scientists actually now think that maybe it's possible that it did come from this Wuhan lab. Then we should investigate No, these posts are, see, we told you all along, this is a communist takeover. The Chinese did this. It's a bioweapon. And we've been trying to tell you the whole time. But wait, you know, I, I thought it was the flu. I thought it was all made up. And likewise, just last week, I see a post here. Remember, this is all on the same person's Facebook timeline. A post that argues that the SARS COVID-2 virus was actually created and patented by Moderna. Right here in the old US of A as some sort of plan to make money off the vaccine that must then be universally distributed forever and ever. But what happened to the Chinese bioweapon? Okay, now, today, 
right here in front of me as I put this all together. There's an article that this person posted. It says there was never was a COVID. That COVID never existed, at least until the vaccine. That the vaccine actually implants those who get it with the virus, but they don't get it themselves. No, it's engineered in such a way that those who get the virus through the vaccine aren't symptomatic, but they spread it to people who don't have the vaccine. So really what it is, is a conspiracy from liberals to weed out the population of conservatives. Huh. So for those keeping track at home, in the span of one year, we've gone from it's a flu to it's a bioweapon manufactured by the Chinese to it's a Moderna money-making scheme. And now... The vaccine is a liberal weapon against the conservatives, and it's actually spreading COVID. All of these posted and argued for on the same person's social media, all with absolute certainty. (laughs) And you know, when you see all this, it is so frustrating. Let me tell you. Sometimes it makes me so angry. Like, I just want to shake them and say, look, do you see how unreasonable you're being? Can't you figure out that it's all contradictions and lies on your own? And and I I want to call all this stuff crazy and stupid and make these people feel bad. Because maybe if they feel bad about themselves, then by some miracle, they'll snap out of it, right? But here's the thing. As we've said before, lashing out like that doesn't help. Because the truth of the matter is, they aren't crazy. And they aren't stupid. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of these folks already feel bad. They feel bad because they suffer from something called cognitive dissonance. If you've never heard of that before, uh, cognitive is kind of a word uh, for thinking. Um, when something is cognitive, that means it, it pertains to thought. And dissonance literally means something like clashing. Uh, Usually you hear it in reference to music, like when two piano keys right next to each other push down at the same time. It's the opposite of harmony. Folks who suffer with cognitive dissonance feel bad because they have these thoughts that are always clashing up against one another in their heads. And no matter how hard they try, they can't get them to harmonize. Thoughts that that just won't jive together no matter how badly they want them to. And that is, is psychologically painful. There's this guy, Leon Festinger, this old psychologist who was really the first one to kind of articulate the theory of cognitive dissonance. He says that actually when you, when you have folks who, who are suffering with this, it's actually a really dangerous situation. What makes it dangerous? Well, those clashing thoughts cause psychological pain. They hurt the head. But sometimes they are so deeply entrenched that the person who has them just can't abandon them without giving up on their own identity without giving up what makes them who they are they think uh, without giving up a, a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives in sometimes to abandon those cognitively dissonant thoughts means 
abandoning a community that has surrounded them with love and acceptance. Have you ever seen the way QAnon folks talk to each other online? It's totally different than when they talk to you and I, people who weren't involved. When they talk to each other, they're kind and patient and encouraging because that's their family. It's a hard thing to give up. So what happens is when you have these clashing thoughts in your head that you can't abandon, that you can't just let go of, that you can't replace, eventually it causes so much sort of psychological pressure that the brain just flips a switch. And it starts processing thoughts and ideas differently. Whereas a normal, healthy mind would believe things that it felt were likely to be true, whereas it would normally require thoughts to be confirmed with things like evidence or reason or history, the mind that has lived too long with too much cognitive dissonance just starts accepting certain truths based on will. That is to say, the dissonant mind believes whatever the hell it wants. And that, my friend, is both a sad and a dangerous situation indeed. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Crossover Q. Episode 8 The Mark of the Beast There's a story circulating in the Q world right now that has a lot of folks really upset and fearful. And as a Christian, I'm scared that it's going to make even further inroads to the Christian community because it preys on an issue that has long been um, a source of trouble in Christianity, an, an issue that has tripped a lot of people up. Namely, it's the idea that the COVID vaccine itself or perhaps even the vaccine passport are actually the mark of the beast from chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Now, if you're at all familiar with Revelation or perhaps the uh, Left Behind series of books that was so popular in the evangelical world back in the 90s and 2000s, then you probably know what this is about. But, but for those of you who don't, let me just read the reference for you straight out of the Bible. This is Revelation 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. It says, Also the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So this Mark of the Beast thing has long been associated with the Antichrist, right? And the way some Christians have interpreted it in the past is that when the end of the world goes down, this mysterious Mark, whatever it is, 
will somehow be your ticket to hell. That the mark is sort of God's way of telling just who should be cast into the lake of fire. So theoretically, you could even be a decent person, perhaps even a Christian yourself. But if you get the mark of the beast, it's all over. Now, we're going to talk about the flaws in that kind of thinking here in a bit, but it's worth saying that in recent history, specifically in the American version of Christianity, there's been a lot of uh, chatter and static over the years about how this thing or that thing might just be the mark of the beast. In the 70s and 80s, uh, when the Universal Product Code otherwise known as the UPC or the barcode, became really popular with retailers, apocalyptic Christian authors like Hal Lindsey were saying that the Mark of the Beast would be some sort of barcode that would be tattooed on humans somewhere, perhaps on the back of the hand or on the forehead, like the passage says. And for a lot of people, that made sense to them at the time, because Revelation says that you have to have the mark to buy and sell, right? And barcodes are, are pretty important in today's society if you want to buy or sell anything. Likewise, there were some folks who eventually came up with the idea that maybe the mark of the beast would be some sort of microchip. They would be implanted somewhere under your skin. Kind of like the one that you get for your dog. So it doesn't get lost. We see this technology in the RFID chip in your credit card. When that chip first came out, that, that little metal square in your card, a ton of evangelicals just flat out refused to get it. Because they thought that maybe having that chip in your pocket would be like punching a one-way ticket to hell if Jesus happened to come back and found you with it. And if nothing else, the chip would be just one step closer to having one implanted in your hand somewhere. <laughs> And then when cryptocurrency came out, Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, you know, new ways of buying and selling, that got connected to the Mark of the Beast as well. Or even the new driver's licenses you, you have to get now in order to fly on an airplane, even though that's just in the United States. Uh, who knows? But for some folks, it's just all that stuff together. It's... It's all collectively kind of bad. The mark of the beast. Outward and visible signs of an inward and invisible damnation. And now, finally, of course, in Q World, it's the vaccine. Or the vaccine passport. That's that little card that hopefully they gave you when you got your vaccine uh, that you might have to show someone to go on a cruise or go in the hospital or whatever. They're saying that we have been injected without our knowledge or consent. With a computer chip or a mark or something that will damn us for all eternity. Or that, that little... A piece of cardstock in your wallet with Moderna or Pfizer written on it. Imagine that. The deed to your immortal soul. Your passport to everlasting torment signed by your local CVS pharmacist. Now, I don't mean to make fun, okay? It's hard not to joke about it. But it's actually really very serious. We have a word, a term, for this whole mentality surrounding the mark of the beast. 
It's called Salvation Anxiety. And trust me, it is an absolutely awful thing. I have another link in the description posted to an essay about it. You should check it out if you have the time. Because it's such a destructive force in people's lives. A lot of folks, especially in evangelical circles, develop this fear that they will somehow, uh, perhaps even inadvertently, lose their salvation. Okay, That they will be damned. That God will, will turn God's back on them because of some sin they did or some mistake they made. Uh, you know, because they slept with their prom date or, um, uh, you know, took drugs when they were in college or, or had some other momentary lapse of accidental transgression of biblical law. And this Mark of the Beast thing often falls into that category. And I just can't tell you how this tears people apart. I have ministered to people who deal with this. When I was a youth pastor, I saw it in kids all the time. It was usually around sex or drugs or other peer pressure things. Now I see it in adults, even the elderly. And the truth is, most horrifyingly, I have seen pastors use this kind of spiritual paranoia. They use it as a tool. I've heard them have conversations about, about essentially weaponizing this kind of anxiety to keep folks faithful to their religious commitments. So on one hand, they may be talking about God's grace a lot. And they may seem very positive. They may tell you that Jesus has saved you, um, that, that you're headed for, you know, the big palace in the sky, all that stuff. But in countless, almost imperceptible ways, there are pastors who will introduce to you just a little cognitive dissonance, right? That on the back of telling you about heaven and how much God loves you and how much Christ sacrificed for you and the wonderful plan he has for your life, they will at the same time drop these little hints and lines here and there that make it sound as if God is just looking for you to screw up. Just, just waiting with like bated breath for you to do the wrong thing, to, to make the wrong move so that you can be smited and cast into a lake of fire, to, to somehow accidentally sell your soul or take the mark of the beast or commit some unforgivable sin, like your eternity is constantly teetering over a chasm of destruction. Imagine what it would be like. And I know some of you come from that world and you don't have to think very hard. Some of you are recovering from it. Imagine what it would be like to think that you were living in a world where God was that capricious and arbitrary and cruel. To imagine that at all times and in all places, you had to have your guard up. That there were these eternal bear traps set all over the place just to snare you into hell. And that if you messed up even once, if it was the wrong thing, like taking the mark of the beast, it'll all be over and there's nothing you can do. When you fear hell like that, that's a kind of hell all on its own, is it not? To think that your whole life might be a game played for the stakes of your eternal soul and that you could possibly get the wrong shot or the wrong tattoo 
or the wrong piece of technology or the wrong sliver of cardstock in your pocket that would make you suffer for all eternity without any chance of relief? That is an unimaginably cruel thing to do your, to yourself. That kind of anxiety is not just deleterious to the soul. It is crushing. Those that think that the mark of the beast could be in something like a vaccine that most people are getting just to keep themselves healthy, just to protect their grandparents, those that think that God could reject us forever for getting tricked by some conspiracy theories, those folks imagine themselves to be living in such a dreadful world. And they are worthy of our compassion because of it. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it almost made me cry. They had this interview with this lady that, that had been begging her daughter not to vaccinate her grandchildren. That shot is the mark of the beast, she said, sobbing. And I just don't want them to go to hell. Imagine the fear that she's feeling, the trauma that she's going through, to think that friends and family members were doing this thing that would unalterably harm them forever. To think that your perfectly innocent granddaughter might be damned because her mom took her to a doctor to get a vaccine? That kind of spiritual and psychological pain is why we can't afford to be sarcastic or mean or impatient right now. Because some of these folks wrapped up in these conspiracy theories are bearing such an unimaginable burden. And yeah, I don't know. If we want to talk about personal responsibility, I'm sure they have some. I'm sure some part of it was their fault. But for those of us that are Christian, for those of us that believe that there is, as the old hymn puts it, a balm in Gilead. We can't let our hearts be darkened against people who live with so much pain. Thankfully, I happen to know that all this stuff about the mark of the beast and eternal damnation and whatever is just a terrible, terrible misinterpretation of the Bible. I have the benefit of an education to know that this is a fundamental misreading and misapprehension of the biblical text and, and of the 2,000-year tradition of Christianity. I'm thankful for that because if I didn't, there's no way I would ever worship such a fickle God. There's no way I would subject myself or anyone else to such a morally repugnant religion of fear. If I didn't understand that, then I would work for the destruction of the church. But you and I are here today not to work for its destruction, but to work alongside the Holy Spirit to contend once again in the long span of history for her salvation.
the thing you got to know about the book of Revelation is that it is a very particular genre of literature. You know what I mean by that genre, right? When you go to the library or when you used to stop at Blockbuster on a Friday night, you'd see these signs that said drama, action, uh, biography, documentary, stuff like that. Every book and movie has its own little category that it fits into. And even for the most casual reader or movie watcher, we know that every genre requires its own interpretive framework. We don't even have to think about it. And all that is to say that you don't read all the books or watch all the movies in the same way. For instance, I wouldn't watch a documentary about sea life the same way I would watch The Matrix, right? I mean, I can watch a documentary and say, whoa, there are fish that live so deep in the ocean that uh, they don't even have eyes because it's so dark down there and that's really crazy. That is so cool. But I would never say, whoa, all of reality is an illusion and I'm just a body sitting in a vat of goo hooked up to a computer, right? Or I wouldn't say, whoa, uh, the force exists and there are these crazy night wizard monks who are going to save us from this evil galactic empire. Those are different genres. They require a different way of reading and watching, right? In the same way, in the exact same way, in the Bible, you have all these different genres of literature. You've got letters and law books poetry and prophecy, wisdom and history. That's why the, the word Bible actually means library. Because these different types of books require totally different interpretations. The problem is that some Christians, and I'm looking at you, American evangelical types, some Christians read the Bible as if it's all the same. As if it's all meant to be read exactly like a documentary. As if everything it says is precisely and factually true in the simplest and most shallow way possible, right? The, the, the things that it says about the life of Christ are meant to be interpreted the exact same way as the songs that are written in the book of Psalms, <laughs> as the poetry that we find there, or that the prophets can somehow be interpreted with their running around naked and doing all these crazy things the same way that we would understand one of Paul's letters written 1,200 years in the future. No, each of those things requires a different framework to understand it. In that sense, Revelation is the sci-fi of the Bible. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. And like good science fiction, apocalyptic literature tries to describe the future in the most captivating and visually exciting way possible, while at the same time making a kind of commentary on the present world. So that it's teaching us about this present moment, right? At least that's what good science fiction does. I have this line that, that I like to tell my church or anyone that I, I teach about the book of Revelation to. That, that the point of Revelation is not that it's going to happen. It's that it happens. The book of Revelation happens every day.
apocalypses happen every single day. And the book of Revelation has all these images and dragons and trumpets and angels and seals, these truly epic sci-fi fantastical images to help us understand the very real struggles we face in our lives. Apocalypses happen all the time. Just ask someone who lost a family member to COVID, right? Just ask the policemen that were guarding the Capitol on January 6th. Ask someone who lost their job. The world ends for somebody every day, and Jesus comes for folks every day. When relationships end, when careers are over, when children move out of the house, when dreams are shattered or we lose a loved one, it's, it's always the passing of one world and the start of another. It is the revealing, the revelation of things to come. In particular... The book of Revelation is about how the world was ending in the first century for the Christians in the Roman Empire. I don't have time to get into the whole thing right now, but the background of the book is that this Roman emperor was demanding that everybody worship him. That all the citizens of Rome would um, uh, pay their allegiance to him through a kind of worship. In the book is John of Patmos telling those early Christians not to give in. To even allow themselves to be killed and martyred. If that's what it takes, not to fight a war, mind you, and not to try to take over the Roman Senate or anything like that, but to allow themselves to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. And the reason that the book of Revelation gives is that God will win in the end anyway. That's why the place where I use the book of Revelation, in my preaching and in my ministry most often, is oddly to give comfort to people, uh, to sucker folks whose worlds are being shaken, right? Those who feel, and I, I meant sucker, by the way, S-U-C-C-O-R, not sucker folks in <laughs> okay but i use the book of revelation um to give comfort to those who feel like old things are passing away and that a new and scary world is breaking out upon them i use it to tell them about how god wins in the end about how God defeats all the dragons and rescues all the orphans, about how someday soon they will hear a trumpet sound and know that the love of Christ has conquered everything that is oppressing them. And that when the smoke finally clears, no matter what happens, God will give them the final victory. But that's not how everyone uses the book, right? For some folks, it's about fascination, this kind of morbid curiosity and obsession with the end of the world. Especially in the United States, Christians tend to see the book of Revelation as a code to be broken or a puzzle 
uh, to be solved. And somehow everyone who thinks about it like that, everyone who has that little hobby of theirs on the side or as part of their career, if they're a preacher, anyone who, who uh, reads the book like that is usually about to tell you about how they solved the puzzle, right? <laughs> about how they can read the signs all around them. And Jesus is coming back tomorrow and it's all going to go down and just you wait. But at the end of the day, that's um, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, think about it for a second. So, Revelation has been in the Bible for almost 2,000 years. It was a little hairy as to whether or not it was going to be included in the first couple centuries, but it rounded up to say that for 2,000 years, that book has been part of the Christian scripture. And if someone is saying, if, if, if someone is contending and in, in posting and arguing that the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, is the mark of the beast, and that Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton is the dragon that sits on seven hills then that means that for 2,000 years, Christians have been reading and studying and preaching and puzzling over a book that had nothing at all to do with them? That they've been studying words that had no bearing on anyone's life at all for generations? Also that when the year 2021 came around, a few folks would know not to get tricked by this massive vaccine conspiracy? Now, the fact of the matter is, the book of Revelation meant something to its original first century audience. And it can mean something to everyone in every generation and every culture throughout all of time. Because if it can't do that, then it's not holy. It's not inspired. And we've been wasting a whole lot of time and paper. I want you to take a, a breath for a second and come back and I'll explain why. So then tell us, Vicar, what did the Mark of the Beast in Revelation 13 actually mean to Christians in the first century, and what does it mean to us today? Well, the first thing that you have to know is that the word mark is a really bad translation, okay? It's not really the mark of the beast so much as it is the seal of of the beast. And back then, seals came in a variety of forms. Sometimes they were wax, sometimes they were metal, and yes, sometimes they were ink marks or stamps that were affixed to administrative documents to assure their authenticity. Think of the watermark on a dollar bill or that little embossed symbol on your car title that you have to get from a notary in order to sell it. The seal is a mark of authority that what you're doing is endorsed by some power uh, over you, that, that you're about to, to make a transaction that has their blessing, right? Around the time that Revelation was written, we know that the big seal uh, 
that had everyone abuzz, that everyone was talking about in the Roman Empire, we know this through archaeology and history and those things, the big seal that was on everyone's mind was the one that was affixed to something called a certificate of sacrifice. And the certificate of sacrifice was a document that was required to pursue certain trades to conduct certain uh, economic and financial ventures, to, to just plain do business in ancient Rome. Does that sound familiar? Also, the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So how was the certificate of sacrifice presented in ancient Rome in order to do business? It was extended in the right hand or it was held up against the forehead for all to see. That is the mark. So how did one get this mark? How did they get this seal, this certificate of sacrifice? Well, it was actually really simple. All you had to do was head down to your local imperial temple. This is the spot where a, a statue of the emperor was put on a pedestal and people would come to worship it. And all you had to do was take a pinch of incense and throw it on these burning coals on that altar. Before the book of Revelation... The emperor was, of course, Nero, whose name in this ancient uh, system of Hebrew numerology is translated to 666. So we know 666 is actually the name of Nero, and it's, it's complicated and historical as to why that is. Um, but, but the point is that, that Nero was a bad guy, okay? Um, Nero was a guy who made his name, among other things, by persecuting Christians and using them as scapegoats. And when Revelation was written, at the, the literal time that it was written, Nero's practice of requiring... The certificate of sacrifice was reinstituted by a new emperor, a new beast in Revelation parlance named Domitian. And as a way of persecuting the Christians and the Jews and all those folks that he knew could never worship an idol other than their own single god. Domitian decreed that every Roman citizen, in order to buy or sell or do business, must sacrifice just a pinch of incense and pledge their allegiance to, quote, Lord God Domitian. So this is where it gets interesting. Because those two words, Lord and God, they're found all over the Bible, right? Two of the most common words in the whole Bible, as a matter of fact, for obvious reasons. But did you know that throughout the entire New Testament, the only place where the words Lord and God occur right next to one another is throughout the book of Revelation. And it's always in reference to Jesus Christ. It's almost as if John is saying, no, Domitian is not 
the Lord God. Jesus is Lord and God. Jesus only is Lord and God. And Domitian is not. It's inherently subversive, right? This is the subversive Christian politics of the first and second century. So that's what it meant back then, the mark of the beast. And that's why it was included in the revelation. Okay, that's fine. But what does it mean to me today? Well, people get kind of hung up on the buying and selling thing, right? That's why they get so freaked out about the barcodes and the credit card chip and all that stuff. But the buying and the selling isn't the point of it. If it were, then we'd all be freaked out by shirts and shoes, right? Because those are what we need in order to go to McDonald's and buy some chicken nuggets. Does that mean that shirts and shoes are the mark of the beast? Or the fact that you have to show your driver's license to get a pack of cigarettes or a, a doctor's prescription to buy some pills. Sometimes you need some kind of official documentation or some other administrative thing in order to buy something. It doesn't mean that it's going to damn you to hell. No, the salient thing about this passage is not the buying and the selling. It's the worship. It's the allegiance. It's the loyalty that the mark represents. The entire book of Revelation, the entire book of Revelation, is an exhortation to Christians both in the first century and then down through the ages, that it's better to die than worship the wrong emperor. It's better to die, in fact, than to worship the wrong god. It's better to be poor and ostracized and get cut down, even martyred, then pledge allegiance to a worldly authority. See, here's the thing, and this is what has me so um, hyped up about this whole Mark of the Beast thing. It's that you can't accidentally receive the Mark of the Beast. You can't stumble into it or get duped by it. The Mark of the Beast is the intentional, even enthusiastic worship of worldly power and authority. It is an acquiescence to the strength and hubris of political power and military might. It's what happens when the allegiance we should be reserving only for Christ and his kingdom is given to a strong man in the ideology of the nation he represents. Huh. Well, would you look at that? Maybe the mark of the beast is more common than I thought. So right before the pandemic hit, I had the chance to go to the Holy Land with a group of preachers and as part of our trip, we were taken to this mountain overlooking some place called the Jezreel Valley, or as it's more commonly known, the Valley of Armageddon. It was amazing to me because it was this peaceful, green, bucolic place, the most gorgeous uh natural environment that I think we saw on our whole trip. 
And I was standing there just tired and spiritually drained from this amazing pilgrimage that we were taking together. And we were all there letting the breeze just wash over us as we took in the grass and the mountains and the crystal blue sky. Most of Israel is this rocky desert, right? But Armageddon on a nice day is just lush and tranquil. And as we were standing there, just taking a moment, trying to appreciate the beauty of this incredible place, I couldn't help but overhear a man giving what I can only describe as a crazed, angry lecture to a group of people that I assumed to be fundamentalist Christians, and he was spinning all of this revelation prophecy about how one day uh, the tanks would come all the way down from Russia and attack the nation of Israel, and how the United States would send in its planes, and the, the final battle would happen right here, right in this spot, you know, under the shadow of a giant mushroom cloud in the great battle of Armageddon. But what he didn't mention to them was that Armageddon had actually been the site of lots of battles in the past, almost too many to count. In the ancient world and during medieval times, the Crusades, even a battle was raged there during World War I. And that's because it's this incredibly strategic valley that provides access to the Golan Heights and the, the biggest cache of fresh water in the entire region. But the thing is, after all those battles, the world has just kept right on spinning, hasn't it? In fact, it's turned into kind of a cycle there. That the peaceful valley, from time to time, fills up with swords and war horses. The battle rages, the blood is shed, but then peace is restored. And the years pass on, generations come and go. Battles punctuating long strains of peace. That's probably why John of Patmos, the author of Revelation, chose Armageddon as the site of this final conflagration of the forces of good and evil because he knew that this peaceful valley represents everything everyone is fighting for all the time. The problem comes when we lose sight of that fact. The fact that peace and beauty are actually far more prevalent in the Valley of Armageddon than are war and darkness. You see, when we treat every battle as if it's the final one, as if it's the one that is going to to be the last chapter in the history books, whether it's our personal history or world history, as if the tragedy that we might face today might mean the end of the world and that heaven and hell are somehow always at stake when we convince ourselves that the battle of Armageddon is around every corner then we never get the chance to experience the peace or the beauty of the Jezreel Valley. We never get to sit and take in the verdant plain or rest in the green grass. 
There were no tanks there that day. There were no men with swords or guns. Yet those people could only think about war and violence. And to me, that is just so indicative of the way anxiety and paranoia shouts down the peace of Christ in our lives. QAnon has only one weapon, and that's fear. The tragedy for those who continue to believe it is that they can only see the battle. The sky for them is always turning black, and the soil is about to be red with running streams of blood. They can't seem to to notice the grass that's under their feet right now, or feel the wind on their faces. But we're never going to give that to them by yelling and arguing. Because that's only going to prove the point and start another war. The best that I think we can do is just to invite them over and over again to see beyond all the battles we may face. To see that life is still beautiful and the world is still teeming with the grace of God. Well, my friends, I hate to say it, but I think our time together on Crossover Q is starting to wind to a close. We're not done yet. I have one more guest interview that I'm going to get out to you in the days of head, kind of a bonus. And then one more full episode, and then that'll be it. I will have exhausted all that I have to say on the subject of QAnon. And if you've appreciated the time that we've spent together, I'm going to ask you to please rate us on iTunes or on your podcast app. Leave a review if you can. And that'll just help expose other folks uh, who might need to be a part of what we're doing here today. Who might get some help out of these little talks that we've had. Also, I want to tell you that I'm working on a book. Um, It's not about QAnon right now. Um, The book I'm working on is actually about one of the few things that's worse than QAnon. (laughs) It's a book about hell uh, and how we've misunderstood um, what hell is over the years and how what we teach to our churches and what we teach to our kids about hell is um, just pretty ridiculous and doesn't it all match uh, what the early church tradition had to say about it. So, uh, do me another favor. After you have um, rated this podcast on your app and after you have read a review, uh, send me an email at crossoverq at yahoo.com or you can leave it as a comment in the review section. And just let me know uh, if, when this is all over, um, you'd like to hear it. And if I get enough of those emails, I will um, link to this podcast a new project that's related to my book on hell. And we'll have a talk about hell together. If that's something you would like, then let me know. And if enough people are interested, I don't know what the number would be, but let's just say if it's an impressive number, um, then I will start a new podcast sometime this fall. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about hell. 
Also, if you happen to be a publisher or a book agent or anything like that, and you might be interested in any of this, please don't hesitate to uh, send me an email. I'm all over the Google machine, so you can figure out how to get a hold of me. Now, I bid you, take a moment simply to breathe and receive a blessing. I know that sometimes the battles in our lives can seem like Armageddon. Especially now, it can feel like everything is at stake. As if it would only take one screw up, one mistake, to flush everything down the toilet. But friends, that's just not how any of this works. We do not hang on the precipice of destruction. God's hand is more steady than that. And if it is our time to fall, if tragedy does strike us or our family or the country in which we find ourselves, we should know that the love of that God will bear us up that it will wipe the tears from our eyes and give us a share of the kingdom. <clears throat> and now, may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you now and always. Amen. Oh,